This is Competition Law with Professor Karon Beaton-Wells, exploring the challenges in competition policy, law and enforcement. This series looks at the impact of those challenges in a digital economy and on society overall, whether you're a citizen, consumer or competitor. In this episode, Caron speaks with Professor Philip Marsden from the College of Europe and the Bank of England. From different jurisdictions, different approaches to consumer welfare harm, different legal traditions, could we find a pragmatic, common approach to addressing these things? That's what we're hoping for, is that it can be a sort of quintessentially British contribution. No one's going to hang placards around our necks that says, what do we want? Common sense. When do we want it? In due course. But that's basically what we're saying, is let's have a debate about the how now. Here's Caron Beaton-Wells. This is the first episode for the podcast that I've recorded with my guest actually in the same room. Philip Marsden is visiting the Melbourne Law School for a conference, and so we've pulled up a pew in the student lounge over a busy lunchtime. Our principal topic for discussion is the report of an expert panel appointed by the UK government on how to unlock digital competition. Philip is a co-author And he's passionate about the recommendations as a possible middle path between the polarised positions we so often hear in this debate. But knowing him to be an intrepid runner, I was curious. Had he had a chance to take in the sights along one of Melbourne's many running trails? Absolutely. I did a few miles there yesterday. It cleared the jet lag away. I'm really excited to be here. It's my first trip to Australia as well. Wonderful. Now, your bio is chock-a-block with titles and affiliations, but according to your Twitter profile, you think of yourself as a competition flaneur. You've got to tell us just what does that entail and how do you get a job like that? I'd recommend it to anybody. What I mean by that is I've had the good fortune of doing different jobs in government, as a prosecutor, as an official, as a decision maker, and then also as an academic and also in private practice. So I've sort of pottered around from job to job as I found interesting things to do and have tried to enjoy it as much as I can, which I always do. And it does mean, of course, you'll bring multiple perspectives to the issues we're going to talk about. Now, amongst your many roles and pursuits, you've most recently been a member of a special advisory panel to the UK government. And the review has produced an awesome report with some fascinating recommendations on how to unlock digital competition. Who came up with the title? (laughs) We had a range of debates. I was plumping for the winner takes it all, an ABBA reference, Um, (laughs) but that didn't get them in as many votes as I wanted it to. No, it was a great way of summarising what we were trying to do, is not necessarily to push competition into markets in some negative way. It was more to unlock markets and make sure that competition was able to thrive naturally. And who else was on the panel? We had Amelia Fletcher, Diane Coyle, Derek McCauley, and we were chaired by Jason Furman, who's excellent and was able to round up all our different perspectives in a really forward-looking way. I can't help but observe this is just one of a string of reports and inquiries that are being conducted on similar themes around the world. If you had to point to one or two things that you would say distinguishes this particular review from others, what would they be? I think one of... 
two things I'd mention. One is that we are firmly behind maintaining a focus on a dynamic consumer welfare standard, and some reports have come out not as supportive of that. And at the same time, though, while retaining that focus on consumer welfare, we're also coming forward and saying that ex-post competition law enforcement isn't enough and that we need to have some sort of additional complementary pro-competitive regulation. And sometimes those two recommendations don't sit well together, but I think we got the balance right in our report. Okay, well, we're going to get into the nitty-gritty of the report, but let's do some scene-setting or some contextualising first. Now, elsewhere, you have written about how we might go about avoiding a Brexit-style saga in this area, and you've referred to two different camps or narratives in the debate about digital competition. Tell us about those two narratives and who's in each camp. Well, one main narrative is that the sky is falling, a kind of a chicken little narrative, that these tech platforms are just moving too fast, they're breaking things, we can't catch up with them, the world is coming to an end, they're all run by creeps, this kind of argument. And out of that narrative comes a statement that we should leave antitrust. We should leave expert-led inquiries, leave evidence behind, leave independence behind, and just politically change the dynamics in which these companies operate. Indeed, break them up, impose price caps, those sorts of things. And then the other side of that debate is a remain narrative. And that narrative comes from two different voices. One voice is from the tech companies and their advisors. And that voice says, competition is a click away, nothing to look at here. We all used to have Blackberries, now we don't. The markets tip, then they tip back again. And by the way, you should thank us for the innovation. And the other voice it says the same thing, which is nothing to look at here, move along, is from some of the competition enforcers who say, don't criticize our tools, just give us the budget so we can do the same cases maybe a bit quicker, and maybe we could be a bit braver, but don't change the fundamentals of competition law. And so those are the two narratives that have been going back and forth in some of the debates. And as a quasi-intellectual sort of academic person, I find them quite boring (laughs) because we've heard them so much. And I think it's better to try to propose something that brings the values behind both debates together. And that's what we try to do in our Furman report. No doubt. Well, let's talk about the framing of the report's recommendations. It usefully sets out at the beginning some general propositions that then inform the analysis and the approach that, as you said, might represent a middle way between those two narratives. What are those key propositions? Well, for us, the first main proposition is to recognise the incredible benefits of these tech platforms and of innovation generally, and not to do anything that would scare the horses or chill innovation anyway. Then there's a recognition of increasing concentration of markets, so to speak. And even though markets do tip and people argue that this is just some sort of Schumpeterian approach that we should be able to tolerate, nevertheless, there are triangles of harm in between those tippings of markets. And when competition is for the market, you end up seeing situations where there can be less consumer benefit than you'd like in so-called zero-price markets, or you may be seeing something where the benefits that we all agree are there in terms of increased choice are also affected perhaps by a steering of choice or a lack of choice when we think we have lots of choice and we actually don't. Mm, Okay. Well, there'd be very little controversy around that first proposition, namely that the digital economy is delivering enormous 
benefits for consumers, but also for businesses and indeed for government. I want to tackle you on a couple of the other propositions. Let's start with the one around there being high levels of concentration in digital markets. Of course, that depends on how one defines relevant markets. And the markets isolated for that purpose in the report are the usual suspects, online search, social media, digital advertising, which of course implicate dominance on the part of Google and Facebook particularly. But you'd be aware also that those definitions are highly contested and there are others who argue that these companies are competing vigorously in broader markets for attention on the one hand and advertising on the other. And of course, if one takes that purview, there are far more rivals in each of those market spaces. Why was that an approach implicitly rejected by the panel? Well, I wasn't going to suggest that, as in offline markets, the tech company's market definition argument is like Coca-Cola's argument that they're competing for the share of throat. I wouldn't go that far as to say how specious that argument is. I'd say instead that they have to recognize that whether they're oligopolies or molligopolies or different islands competing in different areas with all sorts of peripheral competition, there are certain core competences that they all have in which they have perhaps largely through superior foresight skill in industry attained very large powerful positions upon which other companies and consumers are dependent. And one of our key focuses in our report was to look at that dependency that we all feel. And you can have some degrees of dependency even on a shopping situation, a supermarket situation, in some ways where there may even be consumer benefits and yet there is still some feeling of lack of choice or dependency and that's what we were focusing on. For the sake of argument, let's accept that the markets are as defined in the report and indeed those definitions are consistent with definitions in the high-profile cases that have been brought by the European Commission. I want to tackle you now on the causes of this concentration. One of those pointed to by the panel is the massive accumulation and use of data. And the panel takes the view that this is, in certain circumstances, a source of power and a barrier to entry. Why did the panel reject the opposing position that one commonly hears that data is everywhere, it's an infinite resource, it's low cost to collect and it's non-rivalrous. Well, I won't get into the various Vs that are mentioned with respect to data about velocity and, and all these points. What I'll mainly point out is that data itself is something which clearly isn't like sunshine, not in a world of walled gardens. And you have a situation like that in some of these areas where whether they're walled gardens or islands, certain firms accumulate and use through their fantastic algorithms and other skills, their ability to control this data. And this accumulation of data is not available to entrants. And one of the things that we were looking at in the Furman report, and which echoes also work that the CMA had done in open banking, was a way of 
allowing entrants to access this data and also allow consumers greater control and portability over the data because if it's of no real value to some of the big firms, Google and Facebook often say it's our secret source and our engineers that are the value, not the data. Well, if that's true, then they shouldn't have a problem with releasing some of the data. Well, you've referred there to the condition of entry, which we all know is critical. How about the additional argument that is commonly put by tech companies and their advisors, and that is that if you look at the history of entry into online competition, it clearly shows that a large data set is neither a prerequisite for nor a guarantor of success. And one only needs to look as far as WhatsApp, Uber, Tinder, all companies that both entered and succeeded because they produced a service that consumers value, not because they had data to begin with. No, I agree. Most of the successful tech companies have succeeded in competition on the merits, using the data and using their algorithms and their engineering capacity in unique ways. One of the concerns we have, though, is with a situation where you look back at how they accumulated the data. And if it is true that data is completely non-rivalrous and not really any part of the secret source at all, then why did these big companies expend billions of pounds or dollars writing exclusivity contracts to ensure that they got sole control over the data for a certain period of time. And our point in our report is that now they have used this position to move so far ahead of the competition that it's very difficult for the others to catch up. We would never suggest that you should be handicapping the winners to allow the entrants to catch up with them. But we feel there's been such a big tip because of the accumulation of data that now something else has to be done to be able to ensure that there's a competitive structure to the market. The other cause of concentration, also commonly referred to, is network effects. Now, the report does acknowledge that network effects and associated feedback loops don't guarantee concentration, but it nevertheless characterises them as a key feature of market tipping. What would you say to the counter-argument that network effects, first of all, may be positive but may equally be negative and secondly whether positive or negative are merely a reflection of competition at work because they reflect the value that users do or don't put on a particular service. I think there's definitely a value obviously to the network effects and that's why at one point I was on Facebook mainly to find out what was going on with the rowing club that I was involved in. And then eventually I found out that it was such a time suck, on my <laughs> part at least, because of my own inertia and my own biases, yeah. that I left the platform just because of that. But these kinds of network effects where you see these kinds of benefits are extremely helpful and you get to coordinate with more people and build new things and platforms can have more sellers on them and small sellers may not even be able to have reached a market without access to that platform. So there's a range of benefits. And equally, there's a range of negatives, as you allude to, in which the Cambridge Analytica saga could have gone very badly, and we might not even have had a Facebook anymore after that. And perhaps surprisingly, we still do. But that could be because of the inherent benefits of the platform. We don't know. But one of the things I'd point out to the critics of this view that these network effects can act to entrench dominance or entrench concentration is just the reality. You just look at what's happening, how difficult it is to move. And if I wanted, for example, to take any of my Facebook contacts when I had them and, say, tweet 
something to all of them, I couldn't. Whereas if you look at some of the firm and suggestions we're making, we're saying, well, wouldn't it be better if individuals could port their data over and not necessarily divorce themselves from the main platform they're looking at, but instead engage with their own data in other platforms. And then that kind of competition between, even if you want to call them oligopolies, would be more enhanced in some ways by that enriched interaction between the two. And your references to porting, of course, brings up the issue of switching costs. And the report does acknowledge that the anti-competitive potential of network effects will be ameliorated where switching costs are low and users multi-home. But the panel also made the point, uh, with some merit in my view, that there are limitations on switching in digital platform markets. What were the key limitations from your point of view? I think some of the key limitations are, first of all, we have to admit this, our own. Consumer inertia, laziness, we value our time differently. I was on the CMA's banking inquiry for two years, and it was only at the end that I decided to multibank. I didn't even switch my main incumbent bank. So we look at some of these situations as a consumer or as a user, and we realize that there are limitations there. But also the platforms to their credit, actually, their business model is not based on them giving everything away. And so we would never suggest that there be some sort of mandated access or some sort of massive data release, especially given privacy concerns. But we think that a greater engagement by individual consumers so they have the choice, if they wish, to port the data may mean that some of them do. Probably a lot of them won't bother, but it depends on how easy that is. And if it was the case that I could just press a button on my app and suddenly send all of my Facebook friends a tweet, for example, to use that point again, that would be very easy, whereas, of course, that's not possible now because there's no interoperability between those two. What about switching costs for business users? I think there you've got a different sort of situation because it's not so much the inertia point as human beings, though that would apply to the SME business person who's probably even more time-starved than an individual. But the kinds of dependencies we were noticing of most business users is such that even with all the will in the world and all the budgets in the world, they tend to move towards the platform that will obviously allow them the greatest reach. And that's their natural focus. And we were finding that their dependency because of that natural inherent difficulty of switching away from that means that perhaps we should have a kind of a code of conduct to ensure that that dependency on one side of the platform, on the business side of the platform, is countered by some extra obligations from the platform itself. If we move from the existence of market power to its durability, which is I think where the rubber hits the road in terms of the polarisation of narratives here... You've referred to the fact that there's a general proposition out there that it's competition for the market rather than competition in the market that means dominance is transitory for many of these firms. First of all, if you could explain for the benefit of some of our listeners what this distinction means for as distinct from in the market and why is it particularly relevant in this context? Well, I think the main way of looking at that as a user, for example, is you're looking at situations where 
once a platform, due to network effects and other benefits, attains a certain size, it means that in that sector, if other companies want to compete for that market or for those kind of customer base, they actually need to take on that sort of dominance, so to speak. Now, thinking about it from the user point of view, when you're looking at competition in the market, you're looking at multiple choices, a range of situations. You could go anywhere you like, as you wish, and so could small business consumers as well. But when you're looking at a market where the market is tipped to Essentially, the benefit, the incentive to get into the market is because you're going to try to grab all of that market, almost all of that market. And that's when you receive the benefits as well, and you're able to provide great efficiencies and innovation throughout the market. So that's the difference as I try to see it in my mind, is it's something where you're basically competing to be number one, not just number one in a race of many, but basically number one in the whole stadium. And the tech company argument would be that again, if we look at the history of online competition, it's one of digital giants supplanting each other over time, sometimes a relatively short window of time. Why did the panel take the view that history is not going to continue to repeat itself? We agree that markets tip, and I mentioned before that not many of us on the panel, I think not any of us had Blackberries in the room. We were all trying to hide our iPhones um, (laughs) from each other or our Google phones. So we recognize, of course, that these markets tip and they can tip frequently. And there can be great benefits from that. And the main answer to the question of why did we think something was different here was not that we believe competition is now static and that we are all going to be faced with for the foreseeable future Facebook and Google and Apple. They will live forever. They won't live forever at all, we don't think so. And we recognise also that they are collaborating in many ways and that is good as well and may entrench their own individual positions. And none of that might be necessarily negative. But there's certain degrees to which the time lag we've noticed in how long it takes, for example, antitrust enforcement to catch up with some of the practices itself. So not just the positions, you know, they may last or may not, but the actual practices that some competition authorities have found negative, the time lag of enforcement is so strong that we felt that something needs to be done to unlock that, to supplant that problem. So it's not the case necessarily that we were looking into the future and saying we're going to have for the next century a GAFA situation. Not at all. It was more one of those ones of saying, well, okay, now look, given the fact that these markets are subject to forces that are not as necessarily as readily... Unsticky. Unsticky, <laughs> yeah, that's, a, that's the word I'm looking for. Is, and the consumer involvement in those markets, while severe and while strong, is not necessarily disciplining the big positions as much as you might expect it in other markets. Then we thought something else needs to be done in addition to ensure that entrants and consumers can be better engaged. But don't we still need to be satisfied, even if we accept high levels of concentration and concentration that's likely to be durable, do we not still have to be satisfied that there is either actual or potential harm to consumer welfare? What were the harms identified by the panel in relation to that? Sure. So for decades now, I've been arguing for that in terms of criticizing other competition authorities, initiatives where I don't believe there's been actual consumer welfare harm. And over the years of teaching European competition law, I've had to stand up in front of students and admit that there are aspects of European competition law where action can be taken when no consumer welfare harm is even possible 
theoretically, let alone whether it's actual or probable. And I'm still very critical of those kinds of decisions. I still think that enforcement action should only be taken when there's actual or likely consumer harm. Nevertheless, in these markets, we're noticing a situation where the dependency of some suppliers and entrants on the platforms and consumer dependency itself means that there can be situations where consumer welfare harm writ large may still be happening. And by that I mean dynamic, non-price effects could be happening. These markets where search is free, free is definitely just means zero price, which means there could be a different price that consumers are actually paid for that. And that means that there could be something that could be done in the markets themselves to make the competitors even better. So it might not necessarily be a situation where these tech companies are lazy monopolists. I'm not suggesting that at all. Um, They're extremely innovative. But there are some aspects where I think better engagement by consumers and by the entrants could lead to a more competitive ecosystem. And that's what our panel decided was lacking in this market, is an ecosystem that could be even better than it is. And that's why we were trying to unlock competition to allow that to happen. Not that we can spell out, nor should we spell out, what the counterfactual is, what this wonderful new ecosystem is. But we felt there are some situations, based largely on antitrust enforcement in the past, where markets had not been working as well as they could. Let's talk about antitrust enforcement and the panel's view about what needs to be done there before we talk about the package of pro-competition measures you referred to earlier. You've indicated that the panel reached the view that the consumer welfare standard itself is fit for purpose. But, of course, you'd be aware that is contrary to the view being taken by an increasing cohort of commentators in the US that calls for a shift towards a broad and more structural approach. Why did the panel take the view that that shift would be counterproductive? Well, we looked at various initiatives and statements made by politicians and other reports from other august bodies and also looked at what I'd call the academic fringe of really good, interesting ideas that are out there and they may not be particularly practicable or whatever, but they still stimulate our thinking. And we looked at all of this and we thought, well, look, when you're looking at antitrust itself, though, and by that I mean antitrust law enforcement, where you're looking ex post at conduct that is viewed necessarily as negative and harmful, then you are taking companies who have human rights, whether we like it or not, they have (laughs) human rights, to court. And you have to give them a certain due process and you have to find them guilty of whatever the infringement is based on a more likely than not standard and you afford them all these benefits of due process. And at the same time, you've had to prove that there has been some kind of probable harm. Now, that's all more to do with the procedural fairness of the proceedings, but also to do with why do we have antitrust law enforcement at all, is to stop the harms, and then we have fines, and we have deterrence, and those sorts of things. And we felt that these other suggestions, which is just to get really far ahead of the problem and break up a company, for example, or get really far ahead of a problem and just impose a price cap, or mandate massive data releases, would come with them so many greater harms than would normal ex-post antitrust law enforcement. And we have a range of recommendations I'm sure we'll discuss in a minute about how we might speed that up. So we were very concerned that changing the actual framework of antitrust law enforcement away from something that's evidence-based and based on the consumer welfare harm would be something that would chill competition and harm the innovation that we all seek. So staying with antitrust before we get to regulation, if we don't need to change the conceptual approach... 
what should competition authorities be doing more of and possibly doing differently? What I have really enjoyed learning from while I've been here in Australia is, for example, Rod Sims, your head of the authority here, said something that was just music to my ears. He said he'd be very dissatisfied with a win-loss ratio in court if it was higher than 80%. Yeah. And that just really struck me. And I thought, I'd never heard that from my legal colleagues in the CMA or the OFT. They were only satisfied if they absolutely win every case. Now, when I say legal colleagues, I mean the legal service within the authority. And many lawyers outside the authority would probably say, yes, you should never bring a case unless you're sure you can win. Why would you expose this company to all the costs of you just winging it as an official? But I've never met any competition official that just wings it. They're extremely humble. They take a lot of care in developing their case or even deciding whether to prioritize the case in the first place. And so when they get actually to a situation where there may or may not be an infringement and there's an independent decision-making group within the authority, then it goes on. This can take an inordinate amount of time. And you have to do cases and bring cases if you're going to have any steel in your sword at all. And so my main recommendation would be for authorities to be bolder and bring cases. You've got independent take judicial risks. review. Take risks. You're not going to scare the horses. The process of bringing a case, prioritizing it, running it, can still take a long time. And even though I do hear from some advisors to tech companies that if you change on the margin the incentives to enforcement to make the authorities take more risks, then you're really going to harm the entire technological False ecosystem. I just don't see that as a genuine risk there. The odd case here that comes out and it still has an opportunity to be independently judicially reviewed, I'm completely fine with that. But I think an approach which is we will not bring a case unless we will absolutely win in court is something that even the authorities that litigate 40, 50 cases a year, they don't even have a standard like that. Whereas at the CMA, we didn't have more than two or three cases a year and we applied an extremely hard standard to ourselves. And I felt that we were not taking the kind of risks that we needed to do and even then we brought cases that we thought were slam dunks and lost and so even then you don't get it right so i think having that focus on just bringing more cases getting them through the judicial process and then also having that judicial guidance because equally i'm not a huge fan of a majority of cases being decided on the basis of commitments because i don't feel that gives the guidance to industry not that transparent is so needed. Enough. it's not transparent enough that said i would be more of a fan of them if authorities were doing more to write up their commitments decisions but they are naturally wary of doing that also because of the lawyers within the authority and their views and of course because a commitment process is essentially a negotiation which involves compromise so get bolder get quicker That's ex post. Ex ante, specifically in the area of merger control, what did the panel say the CMA should be doing more of or differently? Well, there are a range of aspects that we suggested. One of them is the old chestnut of do more retrospectives and look more at cases that you decided, no matter which way you decided it, but especially the cases where you didn't take a merger decision or didn't even review it. Now, I appreciate, first of all, that's very difficult for an authority to do. It doesn't have any evidence at all. But that kind of retrospective analysis, I think, can be helpful. There's some negatives around it as well, but they can be helpful. The second thing was when we talked in the digital space about certain companies having strategic market status and I know we'll get on to that when we talk about the digital markets unit we're proposing we ask that those companies have an obligation to make the CMA aware of particular mergers that are coming up whereas right now there isn't a notification requirement but the main suggestion we had in merger control was to adjust the test 
for finding a merger to be harmful and thereby attract a commitments offer or a block of the merger, to have that test not be any longer more likely than not a substantial lessening of competition, but instead now being something where there is on a balance of harms analysis, looking at the likelihood and the magnitude of the harm, there is a situation where we feel that the transaction should be blocked. And again, many advisors have said to me repeatedly that we are absolutely overturning the rule of law here <laughs> and um, scaring the horses. Sky is falling in. Sky is going to fall in again, this sort of chicken little argument. And the situation here is we looked at a range of cases and found that even our approach probably wouldn't have caught Facebook, Instagram. But the point is that on the margins, there might just be one or two more mergers over the next year or two or so that we were looking at, for example, that we might bring in and at least look at. Because that was one of the main problems we had is that there were a range of transactions that aren't even looked at by the authorities. And so we were hoping that that kind of substantive change of the test, but also recommendations to the CMA for more dynamic analysis of potential competition, those areas, a lot of which the authorities are already doing, would allow a more thorough examination of some of these transactions. Some critics, I understand, of the Sainsbury's Asda block that's just come out recently, and which I had nothing to do with, have suggested that the CMA might already have been applying a balance of harms test to block that merger. I have no idea whether they did or not, but I do think that the balance of harms approach is the most economically literate way of analysing mergers, and this is backed up by various experts, including Carl Shapiro. But no doubt you've heard the argument that the key issue might be there, the problem with the counterfactual. And if you take the Facebook, Instagram example you've referred to, how would an authority looking at a target that has only seven employees is just fresh out of the proverbial garage, how would an authority empirically, reliably predict that this might be the next Facebook on the horizon? Yeah, it all boils down to judgment, in my view. We can't find mathematical certainty. Some critics of our balance of harms approach have said, oh, you're weighing up 1% likelihood of a trillion pound harm, and therefore you're going to block every deal. I would say, no, we're not doing that at all. First, we had a substantiality requirement in there as well. But more often, it's got to be what's a likely or realistically probable effect. And if you look at the data and you say this is 16 people with hardly any turnover and it looks like it's just a photo album and we can't predict what it'll grow into, then you may end up clearing it as well, even under a balance of harms approach. But at least you'd have a little bit more thorough analysis of what the future might look like. But you'll never get a mathematical certainty. And that's why I'm still one of those big fans of having merger review bodies that have some form of independent expertise who can apply that judgment. Because it's not the case that you can just put the facts and figures into an algorithm and come out with a a machine Mm. that says, you know, merger cleared Mm. or merger not cleared. Okay, so humans are still going to have jobs and competition authorities in the years to come. That's a relief. Let's talk about the centrepiece or the piece de resistance of this panel's report, and that is the proposal to create a digital markets unit that would have responsibility for implementing a series of pro-competition measures of the kind you've referred to. What's this going to involve in practice? Tell us, what are the three key functions or tools that this new unit would have? This is the part I'm most excited about in the report because coming from a background of having ex-post enforcement and writing a lot about how antitrust could improve, it took me a long time during the course of our report to come round to this idea that we needed to do something ex-ante. So I was really quite critical for the first month or two of this idea that we added another layer of regulation, another opportunity for perhaps political capture 
infrastructure or other situations that would be negative. Where would the budget come from? All these sorts of things. A lot of that's going to be left to government to figure out. Yeah, um, <laughs> the luxury to, of it. The luxury Specialist of panel. And, and that's one of the things that I really enjoyed about working with these Treasury officials is that they would rein us back sometimes <laughs> from writing detailed scenario for this, this implementation market center. We were very keen on writing all of this down. And they pulled us back and said, actually, it's probably better to set out, as you say, the three core functions. Focus on the verb. We want to have this digital markets unit be able to have this function and it might be added on to another independent regulator of online harms or other digital regulators that might be created. It might be within the CMA or outside the CMA. It doesn't really matter. They wanted to just have us land the function. The big idea. The big idea and land that function and then other bodies could fight out about how it's applied. But our main three goals were to firstly have a situation where participative antitrust or participative regulation is created. And the first way of doing that will be to get the tech companies and their various complainants and consumer stakeholders in a room with government to devise this code of conduct that we were suggesting. The second big idea was that the code of conduct would be enforced through a digital markets unit that would decide which companies have strategic market status And that's something that we are setting out as different from significant market power or dominance. And we can talk about that if you like. And the third point was to make sure that this digital markets unit has the competition and digital experience to be able to ensure that markets stay open or that they open up. And that could be through interoperability or data portability. So it has an effective function relating to opening markets up. And those are the three main core areas that I hope the government does land. And I do feel that the political winds towards creating some form of digital regulator in various countries to do largely with other harms, online harms, privacy harms, mean that it could be a time where it would be... This is the moment. This is the moment, and this would be a good time actually for competition to be built into that. Because if competition isn't built into that kind of regulation, then it could be something where you find the competition authorities at odds with that regulator. Whereas here, let's build it in from the beginning. Well, let's come back to the strategic market status that you've said would designate the jurisdiction of this unit you've indicated that that looks something different from the standard test we use for dominance. Is it broader? I presume it is. And if so, how does one go about working out that a particular firm is strategically significant for this purpose? It's both broader and narrower. So okay. this is a bit of an existential crisis within <laughs> you've us. You've hedged but, your bets. Yeah, I've hedged my bets. So one thing is we were trying to make sure that in focusing on dependency on a situation where companies are an essential gateway. We were using our language very carefully there to say we're not looking at dominance because we thought then you'd have three years arguing market definition and dominance in any case. And we're looking instead at the verb. We're looking at this dependency situation and we're not looking at an essential facilities doctrine. So it's broader than the essential facilities doctrine, which we felt was too narrow in an ex-post context to be able to catch up with the problems that we were finding. So it's not dominance. It's not significant market power because people might interpret that as being a particular figure, depending on what it means in their country. And we're trying to get straight to the actual problem. So you imagine a complainant comes forward and says, I am looking at this platform, I am trying to get on it, or I am on it and I've been shoved off it, or my rankings have changed for some reason. It's not 
necessarily the dominant platform. It's not necessarily my only choice. I have other choices I can go to, but it is a must-have platform. If I'm going to work in this space... It's an unavoidable trading partner. It's an unavoidable trading partner, or other jurisdictions would call it an economic dependency. And that's what we were mainly focusing on. So we hemmed and hawed about what we should call it, and we thought, let's call it strategic market status because of the strategic nature of it, but also because the status could change. So it's not necessarily the case that GAFA will necessarily be on this list. It depends on their function what they are actually providing, what they're making money from, that will determine whether or not they have strategic market status or not. It might be the case that Netflix is on the list. Netflix could very well be of strategic market status in some areas. But it's a case that we wanted a very flexible list, a very flexible approach, rather than just a list of names of companies by turnover, which we know is how the grocery code adjudicator in the UK has set out the rules for who has power in that market. And also, as I understand it, the interim findings of the ACCC digital review is looking at a turnover requirement. And we decided to move away from that and to focus more on the dependency itself. And presumably it's not going to be an opt-in situation for platforms that may or may not be strategic, that these are platforms that are going to be singled out at periodic intervals and designated for the purposes of being subject to this code. There is a significant emphasis in the report, and I think rightly so, on the code being the product of a collaboration with industry. What gives you hope or optimism that the major protagonists in the space will come willingly and receptively to the negotiating table on this? You know, I wish I was more of a cynic. I think at my age now I should be more cynical and maybe I'd be more effective if I was. But I have this naive joy about certain things. And one of the things is that part of me, the cynic, says that when during our inquiry... Google, Amazon, Facebook welcomed discussion of this kind of code so that they themselves could also get ahead of problems that they're facing in terms of whack-a-mole, follow-on enforcement around the world, myriad cases. Yes, they have the resources to fight all of those cases. Yes, their lawyers are very happy to fight all their cases for them around the world. But it nevertheless does lead some of these tech platforms to some degree of distraction at some certain level. It's not just the case that they can delegate all the litigation to their law firms. So there is some degree of distraction, maybe not from their core focus, but in addressing all of these cases around the world, all with different standards of harm, all with different theories, all with different evidence. It's a situation where some of the platforms said to us, not only do we genuinely believe that this code of conduct could be beneficial, but also there's sort of an incentive for us to engage in it because maybe it will take some of the heat out of some of that antitrust litigation, which I was also in favor of as an enforcer because I know these cases can take six to eight to nine years. And so it was a situation where they came to us not, I don't think, unwillingly. They were genuinely interested in it. Now, putting the cynic cap on, I think, well, they would be interested, wouldn't they? Because then they can be part of the setting up of the code. But when we looked at the actual principles that we were discussing, relating to dependency, relating to search rankings, relating to openness and transparency, these are very high-level principles, a lot of which the platforms say they adhere to anyway. Yeah. So it may be that they just need to get better at communicating how their systems work, and maybe some complaints that aren't legitimate would go away. Equally, if there are complaints, maybe we can find a legitimate way of solving the problem faster 
exhausted in current enforcement. Um, so that gives me hope, not just their engagement gives me hope, but also the fact that there seems to be an understanding in the antitrust community generally that if we don't do something to address these new theories of harm, these new problems that are coming up, then something else will just be imposed on us. And that could actually distort markets in an anti-competitive way. So I think I take hope from the fact that competition authorities also seem to have been quite positive about our proposals for this pro-competitive code. They may criticize some of our suggestions relating to antitrust enforcement or merger control, but about the code itself, they've been very engaged as well. So there's two sides of the market that seem engaged with it already. And it just means that government in organizing the collaborative negotiation of this code and in enforcing it have to be really robust. Um, so there's no allegations of capture there. As you say, time does seem ripe with all of the stakeholders in the space now recognizing that action is happening or is going to happen and they all need to have a voice to make sure we get the right balance between benefits and costs for the digital economy. Lastly, Philip, the panel calls for the UK to engage internationally on the report and the recommendations for good reasons, that the issues and the challenges are common around the world. Why would you say that the analysis in this report and its recommendations might present a model for other jurisdictions, given, as you've pointed out, there are some significant differences between jurisdictions on theories of harms and approach to enforcement? Well, given the current political situations with Brexit, I would never suggest that Great Britain has the best model for, on anything, for the, on anything <laughs> frankly, these days, except in this area. Um, uh, but all I'm arguing for in this area is that, as I said earlier, the polarization of this debate is not informative, I feel, to an actual constructive way of getting to something that might actually work and that would ensure that the innovation incentives of entrants and dominant firms and greater consumer engagement increases, all of these things are preserved. One of the problems with the polarization is that there's just all this heat but no light. So it's great conference fodder. But one of the things I'm looking forward to speaking in Melbourne about with your colleagues is this idea that from different jurisdictions, different approaches to consumer welfare harm, different legal traditions, could we find a pragmatic, common approach to addressing these things? That's what we're hoping for, is that it can be a quintessentially British contribution. No one's going to hang placards around our necks that says, what do we want? Common sense. When do we want it? In due course. But that's basically what we're saying, is let's have a debate about the how now, because all the other noise seems to be drowning out any kind of reasonable discourse. And I have to ask you, Philip, is the Australian coffee any better than the quintessentially British <laughs> counterpart? It has to be. It it's not a high bar. Is. I doubted it very much, but it absolutely has been. And it's been a treat speaking about this in a very caffeinated state this morning. I'm sure you'll agree the Unlocking Report makes a really valuable contribution to the debate. And if you haven't yet, I highly recommend you read it. Given the ongoing machinations of Brexit, whether it'll get the attention it deserves from British parliamentarians is another matter, of course. But one thing's for sure, it's going to be studied closely by many around the world. Next on Competition Law, we're joined by Catherine Tucker, Professor of Management Science and Marketing at MIT, and we talk all things advertising. Until then, you can find links to the UK report and some of Philip's recent writing in the show notes. 
And if you need a catch-up, all of our other episodes and links, as always, at competitionlawlore.com. Competition Law was produced by writtenandrecorded.com, and I'm Karan Beaton-Wells. Thank you.